like what was the alternative if you didn't take that loan? What would your life have been like if you chose not to take this loan? What would you have done? Would I'd you- be working probably a minimum wage job, right? Because that's how we price labor. You know, you the part of this is reinforced by the culture of corporations that require you to have that certification. You know, perhaps I could go to trade school and I could be a plumber, but like if everybody becomes plumbers, like I said, what does that value your labor or what does that value? You know, there are alternatives to IT. There's alternatives. There's smaller associate degrees. You know, I recognize that those are all choices. Uh, for me, it's like, I, I don't, I, my brain didn't really work like that, I guess. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's the second half of Student Debt Horror Story number two with Sean McCoy. In part one, Sean described his background, his journey to decide on a university, the basics of his loans, and his experience and difficulties paying them off. Sean left school with nearly $150,000 in student debt. Now it's five years later and he's paid more than required each month, which has reduced it to around $120,000. At this rate, he will have fully paid off his loans around the year 2042. That's not a joke. Today, we continue that discussion and especially focus on Sean's responses to some of the terrible arguments against canceling student debt. These arguments are largely based on the false notion that our individual tax dollars are required to pay for the education and debt of others. To learn more about Sean and his work, you can visit his website at seancmccoy.com. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MNT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MNT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now let's get right back to my conversation with Sean McCoy. Enjoy. Climate, which 
uh, stop outsourcing and make our communities better and stop price gouging and all these things, inflation. Mm. So that's the shiny ball in the negative sense that's thrown in your face mm. of any demands for average people is going to cause inflation because it's the inverse of we will lower your prices and that's what's most important. It's it's ignore all of the non-money things by just focusing on the price of something. But if your wage goes down, do you really care that the price has gone down? If you're if you're if you're don't have a livable climate, does it really matter that mm. prices are going down? If if you're suffering in order to jack those prices up, do you really you know, like uh, an economist uh, I spoke to a long time ago, John Harvey, said something to the effect, I'm going to mangle this, but we have slaves, we had slaves in the cotton fields picking cotton. And by stopping slavery and having to invent machines to do this instead and, and get gas and fossil fuels in order to do that, the price of cotton went up a little bit. Mm. Is that worth the price of stopping the mass exploitation of those people? Right. So it's it's not just the price of things. It's the world in which those prices exist. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of went off and uh, so I'll, I'll stop there. But there, there's a Larry, I'll send you the Larry Summers article. Um, and actually, the final point is, if you demand higher wages, then, yeah, they can just continue to raise prices and mm -hmm. that will cause inflation. It will cause inflation because they'll just jack up their prices. But who allows them to do that? Mm -hmm. Government must be complicit. Mm -hmm. The government chooses to stand in, to stand on the side of companies, and to not stand on the side of workers. So government must be complicit. So, boo, I'll stop there. I completely went off. Go on. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I mean, it's it it it. I I I, uh, I I'm blanking on this man's name. Uh, it's economist from Milton Friedman. Is that his yeah. name? <laughs> I think yeah, that, yeah, that was Mil middle name. Milton Friedman. Uh, isn't I think from the seventies? Isn't he famous for making making the the shift of thinking in at least companies, the largest companies in the world, to to stop focusing on quality and rather to focus on shareholder return? And like when I trace back the origins of this kind of shitty thinking, there's a lot of intersections. Reagan's one of them, but also like this sort of change in philosophy where it's like no matter what, at whatever cost, year over year, we have to continue to grow. That's how we get strong. And I think like at least I believe that's why we're in all of these shitty situations from our climate, ignoring facts, ignoring bubbles, ignoring all of the red flags, chasing a short-term pursuit of profit. It's because of this kind of thinking that we have promised, or not we, because I'm not a part of this, but like companies have promised to the people that invest in them, every year they've got to tell a magical fairy tale story about how their profits have grown 3%, 10%, 12%, 20%. That's what they have that's what that's what they have promised. And so every year they have to devise ways in the long term and the short term of making those ends meet. Yeah, that was Mil middle name. Milton Friedman uh, isn't I think from the 70s isn't he famous for making making the the shift of thinking in at least companies, the largest companies in the world to, to stop focusing on quality and rather to focus on shareholder return. And like when I trace back the origins of this kind of shitty thinking, there's a lot of intersections. Reagan's one of them, but also like this sort of 
change in philosophy where it's like no matter what at whatever cost year over year we have to continue to grow that's how we get strong and i think like at least i believe that's why we're in all of these shitty situations from our climate ignoring facts ignoring bubbles ignoring all of the red flags chasing a short-term pursuit of profit it's because of this kind of thinking that we have promised or not we because i'm not a part of this but like companies have promised to the people that invest in them every year they've got to tell a magical fairy tale story about how their profits have grown three percent ten percent twelve percent twenty percent that's what they have that's what that's what they have promised and so every year they have to devise ways in the long term and the short term of making those ends meet i think that's why we've seen so much offshoring labor i think that's why we've seen declines in manufacturing here i think that's why we've seen a decline in how we treat our environment and the regulations uh, that have kind of disappeared in protecting lands I think that's why we see more continued drilling in fossil fuels versus taking a step back and investing in green infrastructure that would make our supply chains independent from uh, fossil fuel and that whole power sphere of influence. Uh, I, I don't know. When I think about like how the hell did we get in this situation, there there is this mentality of like we've got to we've got to chase we've got to chase this this short golden thing. It's like a small attention span. I don't know. Um, I, I really think that short, that long-term thinking is, is a rare commodity in this country. And it doesn't behold, it doesn't, this is the other thing, right? Not to say that I'm against electoral politics. I'm not, I, I have to believe that we can change things. Um, but like, if you look at people in power, right? Most, you know, on, on the congressional level, most people are in office for four years, presidents four to eight years. What can you achieve in four to eight years that you can brag about when it comes time in another four years? Is it a, is it a long-term choice? Not really, because those require time, 10 years. So the person that is in office after you would reap the benefits of your investment. Rather, it's to leverage debt so, you know, I'm going to spend as much as I can. And I, you know, I, uh, I read your uh, intro before, but, but I'm going to spend as much and pass the debt on to the next person. But I'm also only going to focus on short-term reactionary things, whether it's drilling more oil, whether it's sending more money to our military or our police, whether it's starting a conflict and rallying the population around that conflict so that I can get through the next election cycle. These kinds of short-term Band-Aid solutions that are, in most cases, reactionary, benefit short-term thinking that get people through stage one, stage two. But there's not really a long, you know, if people wanted to eradicate poverty, if people wanted to give housing, let's see the 10-year plan. Let's see the 10-year investment plan. Let's see the Green New Deal pass. You know, that's a 10-year plan. We struggle to get there because it's not a priority. And it, it it's, at least in my worldview, it doesn't necessarily benefit the people uh, who are getting elected in these short-term cycles. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, when you're saying, you know, short-term, it's like thinking short-term, this profit and this growth, I, I don't agree with that 
that it's short term. I mm. mean, I understand what you're saying. It's not short term. It is that narrow focus, like I was saying before, only focus on prices, ignore mm. everything mm-hmm. else. So it's like growth. And you were saying, you know, so jobs are offshored and, and all of the consequences that you were saying. So it's not growth is short term. It's growth is growth for who? Mm. Sacrificing mm-hmm. who? So it's sacrificing everyone not on top in order to make the appearance of growth for those on top or actually make them grow, mm. but sacrifice everyone else in order to do it. And um, there's also an example that I happened to, to look into a while ago is companies steal from pensions mm. mm-hmm. in order to improve their books. In order to so that they can say we have we have growth this year, I'm not going to happen. I'm not going to let you know that I took from the pension in order to increase our put it in our profits so we could count that as profits, even though we just stole it from all of our retirees that have been saving up for 50 years. But we got pensions in order to make it the appearance Mm. of growth, Mm -hmm. and they simply steal the money in some cases. I mean, like, like there's a there's a, a book. I'll, I'll just say briefly. There's a book called uh, um, uh, Retirement Heist. Retirement Heist that talks all about this. Um, so it's it's you know this growth is not short term. It's it's sacrificing everyone mm-hmm. in order to give the in order to give those on top actual growth. So, um, and a, a point going back a little bit was was. You know why would you burden these people? The the person I spoke to in in the in my first student debt horror story last first student debt horror story was a teacher is a teacher, mm. and he has like around fifty thousand dollars in debt. You would think that a teacher who has been teaching for seven years, hundreds of students in a high school, has added more than fifty thousand dollars in value to our economy. So even if you know, our taxpayer money had to pay for education. It just had to. Wouldn't it be a good investment to unburden this this teacher who is going to add way more times than that in value to the economy? And I think I think it's safe to say, you know, that you have added $150,000 in value since you've gotten out of school to, you know, to the world, to the economy. And if you were unburdened, how much more would you have added mm. to that? So uh, I'll just leave it there. Sorry. If no, you no, I agree. The rescue me. Go ahead. No, I agree. I think that's a great point. Um, I, I, I don't really have anything else to add to that because I think you've, you've summed it up well. That's, it's, it, it's like, what are we, what are we, what are we really valuing for the, for the amount that, that, people are paying for education versus what it benefits to society. I think that's a great example uh, of, of looking at what a student does. I think most parents would say, yeah, after like three years, how many students are you teaching? That's exceeds more than the value of, of that kind of education. Um, but so I totally agree. I, I think it's just about kind of reframing the situation that we're put into, uh, in a way where it's like, yeah, I'm being exploited, recognizing that I'm, I'm being exploited and, uh, my labor is worth more than this. Right. Um, okay. So 
Well, let me ask. Let me let let's go here. So, okay. So I sent you some example criticisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of them were, I mean, basically all of them were under your viral tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I kind of made up some, but but they're very real, very realistic to what I've seen. Um, so you know I could I could bring up an example, but you have the list as well. So if any of these any of these uh, criticisms kind of strike you and why they're not valid or why they're heartless or whatever it is, can, can, can we please do that? So if you would like me to pick an example to get started, I can do that. Otherwise just. I'm going to pull up the list here. Um, Yeah. So there's a lot of. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't like to um, harp on people's anger because I think it's valid. I think ultimately, like, a lot of times we're all just kind of like bulls that are steeped up in a pen. And then we unleash this anger out on, you know, whatever we perceive to be the enemy. And I think this is like some of these comments are a really good example of like how we've been trained to like look at each other. And like there, a lot of this is like vilifying tax dollars. You know, I got, I got uh, a lot of people saying that I should just join the military. And if I had joined the military, I'd have my education for free, you know? And one, like, how do you think that education is being paid for, for military folk? It's through tax dollars too. Most of my, um, most of my debt wouldn't be paid for by tax dollars because like, if we were to cancel student debt, that would just, uh, you know, government loans. But I, I also think that it's like, is that really, if you think about that long term, like, is that really the thing that we want to be channeling our to our students that the only way you can succeed to afford an education is if you enlist in the military? Eventually the military caps off. I get that we're short on people we're recruiting, but eventually that option's going to be cut off. I had people tell me, "Well, you should have gone to trade school to be a plumber." It's like, "Okay, so if everyone in this country became a plumber, a, how diversified would our economy be? B, how much would you be getting paid because your labor is no longer as much in demand? And C, is that sustainable? You have to have people with diversity. You have to have people who uh, who are specialized in certain things. I also had a lot of people tell me or say angrily that my degree was useless. And it's like... Uh, it's hard. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, right? Because you tell people you go to school to acting, and and uh, it it sounds ridiculous. But there's a lot of things that from that degree make you kind of a more versatile, I'd say, in in the job market. Like for one, I've got excellent research skills. I've got really great communication skills, not just in terms of writing, but in visually displaying things, in storytelling, uh, in 
in constructing narratives. So you look at any sort of role in a marketing world, advertising, filmmaking, any sort of content creation, which is hot in demand right now. Those skills that I learned in theater, because everything's about drama, everything's about conflict, are really useful. So I don't know. I, it, it's hard for me to focus on all of that anger and that criticism because a, a lot of it's really negative and toxic and like I don't like to put that in my head but I also think that it focuses on it, it's focusing on the wrong thing it, it's not focused on the problem and the fact that yeah perhaps my story is not the poster child story but this is happening to millions of people not just one person millions tens of millions, tens of, millions of people what do you think the how much do you think it's going to cost you as a tax scholar, A, if you have to bail these people out, but B, how much do you think you're missing out in growth or in GDP from these people being restrained from the economy, from being held back? How much generational wealth is being kept away from people because of the shitty financial choice that's benefiting a handful of people? Is that really like I'm the enemy? I, I don't know. I'm. I. I it's really... Uh, it's tricky because like ultimately like I want class solidarity. I want people who are working and who have skilled labor. I, I, I recognize their anger. I recognize the sort of jadedness that this living in the system makes you. Um, so I can empathize with that. Uh, I just think that it's not as constructive to be like, hey, you know, like you, I'm not paying your loans back. It's like, I'm not asking you to, um, I'm asking you to, to be a part of fixing the solution so that all of us have better working conditions. That benefits you. It doesn't benefit the one asshole who's making a billion dollars off a dividend. Like it, it benefits you. It's gonna expand the more like more people who can probably afford your services. You know, it benefits all of us when all of us, when our communities uh, aren't getting slammed like this. Um, so that that's kind of what I would say to those criticisms. It's not the you know like knockout punch, but I, I really think that that's not as a constructive kind of use of energy. I'd rather focus on building building from from the frustration rather than attacking. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, and I'm I'm not asking to attack. I mean, yes, obviously there's there's a lot of anger behind these mm -hmm. criticisms, but they're uh, number one. It comes from the same place as we were saying. You were saying before of you know that we attack those our peers and those below us because of this artificial environment that's been created. When the real enemy is the fact that those who choose to create this environment, and that that anger comes from that same place. That that in a sense, you know, there is resentment because of the false idea that tax dollars are required to pay for education because they're not, not in the military, not in anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It's just not, that's just not a possibility, but that's what everybody is led to believe. That said, there is still some interesting points that uh, like, I'll just bring up one setting aside the anger of mm -hmm. just that you chose to take this loan out. You chose to take a loan. You, you didn't have to. So, if you choose to take a loan, you should pay it back. How would you respond to that? I am paying it back. I've paid. I'm, I haven't missed a payment. Um, personally, that's how I would respond. Um, what about the What about the other side, though? That the fact that 
you chose to take it out? Like how much of a choice was it? How much, like what was the alternative if you didn't take that loan? What would your life have been like if you chose not to take this loan? What would you have done? Would I'd you- be working probably a minimum wage job, right? Because that's how we price labor. You know, you the part of this is reinforced by the culture of corporations that require you to have that certification. You know, perhaps I could go to trade school and I could be a plumber, but like, if everybody becomes plumbers, like I said, what does that value your labor or what does that value? You know, there are alternatives to IT. There's alternatives. There's smaller associate degrees. You know, I recognize that those are all choices. Uh, for me, it's like, I, I don't, I, my brain didn't really work like that, I guess. Um, I don't know if that's the if that's the kind of answer that you're looking for, um, but I think I, I think I don't know. It goes back to this like time hole thing. If you made a different choice, then what would your life be? I would probably just be like another shill working. I you know somebody who's like focused on who's got their nose to the to the axe grind you know, trying to make ends meet like all of us are. I mean, basically you're saying that this is not, it really wasn't a choice. You have to get an education in order to avoid this, this minimum wage daily grind that you would not be doing anything near of what you want to do. I mean, that's what you seem to be saying. Right? Yeah. I'm, I also, so, so, right. So this loan really wasn't a choice in a sense. Like, you know, it, it basically was something that you re- an education is something that you really need and therefore, it really wasn't a choice to sign up for that loan in the same sense. Correct. Um, and like I said, I applied to uh, 11 schools. And when you break down the finances for what I was offered based on my background, like it pretty much all equaled the same. So you go to the place that, that promised you, promises you the best opportunity for what you want to do and, you know, whatever that consequence, it's like everyone, when everyone else around you kind of has the same fate, is talking about the same kind of crap, is in the same sort of debt, it feels like, okay, well, this is just what everyone else is doing. And like, uh, it, it, it kind of feels inescapable. And, you know, like I said, like I mentioned earlier in that, in the interview, the amount of interviews that I think I've had solely because I have this, this degree next to my resume is, is in part, I think one of the things that gets me into the interview now, you know, even as a filmmaker with my portfolio, it's still a part of the application. And like, I haven't worked for like, I've worked for some like pretty notable people. I, if you look at my portfolio, you'll see some like, it's not just like, you know, I'm starting out doing this, like I'm pretty decent at this. So the fact that that is still a qualifier, even after all of this experience, to me, is like a red flag. And I think if you're going to make education a requirement for corporations who, mind you, you know, are are benefiting from having all of this labor and not carrying any of the cost, any of the burden, any of the risk of what that debt means for the holder, for the, the laborer, then either that credential should not be required and we should focus on like merit and you know skill set and value that rather than a degree or make education 
unnecessary thing for for people and or not a necessary thing for people but put it to a place where they can afford it and or or guarantee that to people for free agreed agreed and i mean basically i mean my opinion which i said to you in the, in the email is student loan student loans are predatory mm-hmm. i mean period they're just predatory because education should not have a cost to begin with it doesn't need to have a cost to begin with right. and then when someone comes back and say oh well, my tax you want my tax dollars to pay for your education no it shouldn't have a cost mm-hmm. to begin with not for you not, not for you as someone who might not want to go to college, not for someone who wants to go to college. It should be paid for by the government. But wait a minute, you know, and then back to tax dollars. People have, get, can't get their head around that it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, um, okay, so so my point, my point, which you kind of validated, it's a predatory loan. You don't really have a choice. What is, it is a really, you either take this horrible, bur- you either take the burden and get a credential and get a possibility for a job, or you don't take the credential and you work a grind. And either way, it's a really, there are serious consequences. But one of those consequences of taking the debt is artificially created. Mm. Um, okay, so the next one, and you know, the next one is the criticism that if you cancel student debt, that punishes everybody who already paid off all of their school loans. Do you have any thoughts about that? How does it punish people? I mean, if I pay my debt off and I'm, you know, good to go, am I going to feel jaded because somebody else doesn't get burdened by the same experience that I lived through? If I can recognize that what I just went through to pay off my student debt was a personal hell for me. Why the hell would I want somebody else to go through that? Is that really where we're at? Is that really what we want to be about? Like, d- we we can all recognize that like homelessness is terrible, but like, are are we gonna say that like you know it's just the way it is? I know that's what we say. We recognize, oh, it's a necessary evil, whatever. But like, in my head, especially from somebody who understands what it's like to carry student loan debt. You're saying that, oh, well, I did it. I made it work, so you can too. Is that, like, that's kind of toxic. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that kind of thinking is backwards. Um, and a little bit, uh, I don't want to say, like, sociopathic. But, like, <laughs> it, it's a little bit Polish, um, you know, like that's kind of a dick thing to say, especially when you know the experience, right? And how unnecessary the experience it is and all, all the things, right? Like, for example, there's a couple people in my life, older people, right? Who like when they went to school, it was, you know, $3,000 a year or whatever. And like, that was expensive. And like, Hey, it's a different economy now. Like, you know, we're graduate. I, I another story is like when I graduated from undergrad, I, I wasn't even qualified to work a job. I was like, I still had people asking me to work as an unpaid intern, you know, in order to get my experience side of my job. It's like, come on now. Like back in the day, you could pay for your graduate, you could pay for college by working at a grocery store, by working at the gas station. You know, you could, it might be a stretch, but you could pay your year to year tuition doing that. You can't do that now. You can barely afford housing. And you might not even be able to, like in my state, Virginia, you know, minimum wage, I think is eight twenty five an hour. That's not going to pay your rent around here. You have to live like way in the southern part of the state and commute. So I, I don't know. I, I really struggle that 
that train of thinking. Um, for me, it feels very privileged and it also feels like uh, kind of a dick thing that you see generally, in my experience, mostly older people who when the cost of when they were going to school, the cost was like comparatively pretty mm. low. Yeah. Um, and then you also see people who are like become mega wealthy and you know, of course, everything is, oh, well, I did it. The American dream is real, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I, I pulled myself up from the bootstraps. Doesn't have to do with the fact that like uh, somehow that makes other people struggle un- unlegitimate or not legitimate. You know, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a circus for me to, get, to, to figure out that sentiment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So, so my two responses to this concept uh, is number one, if you think that you suffered and turned out okay, so others should suffer too, you, then you did not, in fact, turn out okay. Mm. That's number one. And number two is we must not stop the murderer from killing more because that would be unfair to all those he already killed. Mm. Um, all right. So just one, one last one uh, uh, criticism that, that is common, um, which is you know heartless, <laughs> but uh, to get your feelings about it, and, and that is – if education did not have a cost, a financial cost, then people would just get useless degrees. How would you respond to that? Like if it was free, then why not just everybody go? And then people could just, it would be chaos. Everybody could just do whatever they wanted. And obviously, you know, you still have to apply. So that's not really a valid argument in a, in a large sense. You have to be accepted and work hard. And, you know, so that's not that free fall that they say, but still, if education didn't have a financial cost and everybody would get useless degrees. Well, define useless, right? Like exactly who gets that's to the key it? word. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think a part of the reason that a part of the like thinking of keeping degrees in general around a flat rate is that it prioritizes what the market demands. And that's another way to beholden people to corporate priorities if you are, you know, every degree from this university is going to cost you $50,000 a year, but the only careers that come out of this from the corporate side are going to pay you $160,000 a year, put you in a place where, yeah, you, maybe you'll be able to pay off your debt in a couple years. You know, that beholdens people to follow what the corporation side of this prioritizes. It's a way of creating artificial choice right because you don't really have a choice what you what you have your impact what you follow and what you pursue and do with your life is beholden to where the market is and that again is another sort of short-sighted thinking because while we may need engineers for the immediate moment in the career you don't know how things are going to shift and and change uh, in the marketplace and so that's one thing I would say to that is like define useless uh, and look at that in the broader context. It's what the market demands and who really governs the market, right? It's not people. It's certainly it's it's money and who holds money. So that's number one to that criticism. You and and the other thing is like when people are passionate about things. That's the other thing. It's like, I think a lot of people demonize passion, right? As if, you know, we don't watch these stories of people finding and falling in love with their passion and empathize with that somehow when it's put in the context of like pursuing education and like building a world for yourself, it's like, that seemed, it's seen as a useless thing. But when people are passionate about something, they're curious and curiosity is what fuels innovation. And as a forward thinking 
economy, right? As much as we want to tout that, how do we diversify our future? It's by innovating. And uh, I think going back to the last point of like the what the market demands, the market is reactionary. The market is regressive thinking. It's looking back at its demand that it didn't have a year ago and saying, oh, we need more of this. It's not thinking, okay, projecting into the future. It's thinking, oh, okay, we have to meet demand now. We have to meet the present moment. We have to meet what we missed last year. It's not thinking progressively versus people who are curious, who are who are whether they're telling stories, whether they're bringing communities together, whether they're creating new things in, you know, in verticals that haven't really been explored. It's a way of breaking a habit. And habits can be good. They can also be bad and debilitating. And uh, I, I think for as much as this country wants to applaud retrospectively innovative people in the moment, and in the present, it wants to punish them. It wants to demonize them. And that's just like a, a really confusing thing for me as well. So I think that's my response to that comment is like, A, how do you define useless? And B, what does that really mean? Let's unpack that. Because like, are we, are, is what you're saying all of us should be, should dedicate our lives to serving the corporate grind, uh, to, to serving the grind of a corporation that's going to use us while it's relevant and then discard our skills and give us no, no security in return. Is that what you're, is that what that comment means? Is that, is that, and is that what you want to say? I think you're, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's, it's about the definition of useful who gets to define the definition of useful. And obviously it's those in power. Those in power are the market those in power define useful as make me more powerful, Mm -hmm. which is make me more rich. So if you as an actor don't make some market guy more rich, then you're by definition not useful, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny because of entertainment is a massive tool of propaganda. Right. So obviously you're useful. Obviously you're valuable. You just don't make a rich guy richer. I mean, that's not quite right, but you, you get my point. Entertainment is a mat. There are so many shows, and at the end of every show, like we just watched, uh, we watched a Muppets thing, and 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 at the end of it, there was three straight minutes long of all of the actors that did all of the translations for like twenty different languages. Like entertainment is a massive tool of propaganda. So clearly it's useful in some sense. Um, and also the, the idea that the, um, you know, that useful as defined by someone in the market, it makes me richer that feeds into that artificial environment of having to sacrifice so many in order to give the appearance of so-called growth, Mm. which is growth for this person, but how much suffering is caused by doing that and and allowing like people to do what they want to think outside of the box to do acting to do anything to do podcasts to do whatever is you know we don't know what the solution is yet and if we don't if we have people to in this in this uh what do you call it on the rails this uh you know games that are on rails that you can't really diverge when you're playing a video game it's Mm -hmm. on rails Mm -hmm then you know we're never going to find it because we're forcing everybody to follow this very narrow path um yeah okay so uh all right so i have i have uh basically three more questions 
and the first one that I want to ask is, you know, we don't have to go too in depth about this because this is really not what it's about. But, you know, I obviously I, I wanted you to introduce you to MMT. I think you kind of had a, a taste of it before we met as well. Um, but, you know, you read the intro and you, you have a, a little bit of a taste of what it's about. And I'm just wondering, does that have any influence as much as you can understanding in the little that you know? have any impact on your view of this student debt subject and schools having a cost subject? Yeah. Um, it kind of feels like, uh, my first impression and I've, I've, I think I've intersected with MMT a couple of times before in the past without really understanding that that's what I was, uh, engaging with, but it's like, it almost feels like a anti-libertarian, uh, sentiment, which I'm, I'm totally on board for. I think it's also really intersectional with with the conversation that's happening right now in our economy. You know, all the, the narrative around inflation, the narrative about all these market forces, um, some of the things that the Fed are, is doing, and like I, it, at the end of the day, money is just a, a promise, right? It's a promise of value. And that promise of value is something that at this point, global markets agree on, but it's also a choice. And we as a government have all sorts of tools that we can use to not leverage money in the way that we are. Uh, And I think it comes down to, like we said earlier in this, that debt is a leverage of power. And so um, I think like, for example, budgets are moral documents, as much as they are fiscal documents. And so when we pledge our budget year over year to, you know, things like the military or things that we kind of spend in excess, we're saying that those things are more important than others versus if we leverage our money in a way where we are providing things like healthcare and climate infrastructure, uh, housing, social safety net programs for people to succeed uh, and to have some sort of like guarantee in this country, those are all choices. And that's how I would kind of respond to that. If that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Um, okay. So, so I'd like to, to end on two questions of, I'll just ask. So number one, how would college have been different I guess even the search for college, because mm. obviously you you decided on a college very much based on cost. Mm. Um, so how would college have been different if it was free and therefore you had no debt? Well, I think that definitely takes some of the high stakes out of just applying in your future, right? Because even as you're applying to school and you have that cost that's weighing over you, you feel the weight of, I can only do this once. I can't fuck it up, you know? And it's the importance of if I don't get into this school, then I'm destined to be a failure for life. Like that's kind of, I mean, that's hyperbole, but that's kind of what what the sentiment feels like. I I think it allows you to, uh, if something's not working, get access to a different skill set. Or if you, you know, you're making this decision at 18, 18 years old. And at that point in your life, based on the, the, the point of where college comes into play, you're supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life at 18. You're, you know, and and you're making that commitment right then and there versus, all right, let's 
let's expose people to skills that they have tried and explored and are perhaps passionate in, give them some experience in the marketplace. And then if they want to readjust their skills or learn something better, then having school be affordable or free to pe- for people makes that an opportunity versus now if you want to go to grad school or if you want to go back to school and learn something like, you know, you're kind of screwed <laughs> unless you're rich, of course. But but that's kind of the answer for, for everyone, right? If you're rich, then none of these things really apply to you. You should have been born into a rich family. That's sure. true. You know, you really weren't thinking ahead. You're so right. I should have. That's that's just the uh, I, I screwed up. Um, yeah, uh, that's what I would I, I would say to that. I think it, it's it it a. I mean, that's for my personal stake. But I also think for people who are like poor, right, who come from as much as as Democrats or you know people in Congress like to talk for uh, underserved communities it gives them a way to to improve their station in life to break the sort of caste system that poverty has in places where it's cyclical and it's predatory it gives people an opportunity to get skills that allow them to participate at the market at a competitive level. And that's still existing within the same sort of capitalist model that we have, right? You're not sacrificing anything on the corporate end for that. You're not, that doesn't require a socialist revolution. It requires a reframing in our priorities. And what, what are we actually prioritizing for people? So we're, well, let, let me, let me ask you, at what point did you realize that this student debt is a really bad thing. Like at what point was it like, I guess in the background mm. and then at some point it was like, this really sucks. Mm. Like what, when did that hit you? Uh, it was for me, it hit me when uh, the, the realization that debt has always been a shadow throughout the process of, of going to school. I'm not quite sure I knew how to quantify it until I actually started making payments. But for me, um, what really wrecked me, I think, was when I graduated and I after I graduated, I moved to New York to do the acting thing. I got a full-time job in marketing to help pay my bills. I was still on my six-month grace period that you get when you graduate. <laughs> and... Uh, I worked at a startup and I started in August and by November that startup had gone under and I was unemployed and I had no means of making money. And at that same moment is when my goddamn student loan payment started. And my first <laughs> my first payment was billed for $972. And I had been laid off the week before and you know, even with that job, I was taking home maybe $600 a week. So on top of rent, it's sort of like, okay, how the hell do I do this? <laughs> how I have to survive. And that, that first year for me was really um, very uh, traumatic. Still things I'm, I'm unpacking. Like I'm fortunate in my life that I haven't really had to live in poverty in a long, like I didn't grow up in that. But in New York, that first year, I was lucky if I was eating twice a day. I had lost 15 pounds because I couldn't feed myself. I was living off of $15 a week for food. And I had to, this is the kicker, right? Because I needed to afford 
my student loan payments and my rent, I had to make a certain threshold of money that prevented me from applying to food stamps. So basically, I was losing money every week and taking like $200 out of my savings uh, to offset just like living. I was under $200, like losing $200 a month after uh, paying for my bills, rent, and student loans primarily, and then like $30 a month for food or maybe $45 a month for food and and nothing else, maybe metro tickets or, you know, like whatever, subway tickets for New York, nothing else. Uh, And and then even after all that, I think I had to make about $1,600 a month and then I was – I was losing 200. <sighs> yeah. So I, that prevented me from applying from uh, unemployment. It prevented me from applying for food stamps. It was just like, in a, it was, it was, uh, it was awful. It was really awful. Um, yeah. Just watching your body fall apart like that. And uh, it just, yeah, don't, don't, don't ever want to be back in that place. So, okay. Yeah. Okay, so I, I assume. So, final question. I assume that that this is going to be at least, assuming everything goes well, assuming nothing goes wrong, you have at least ten more years ahead of you, maybe even fifteen, twenty years ahead of you to get rid of this debt. I'm assuming that that's true. So, my my final question is same thing. But what if you did not have this debt? What would your current life after graduating? And obviously that stress that you just described wouldn't have been an issue or at least not mm. nearly as much of an issue. What would your life now be like if you didn't have to pay whatever, $900, $1,600 a month for the next 10 years or whatever? I would really like to focus on nonprofit motivated filmmaking that uh, is creating pieces for climate justice. Uh, that's really, I think, where my, my passion is right now telling stories about climate change in a human way talking about communities and and looking at looking at at communities that are ravaged by climate change and you know helping people understand that this isn't some distant 30 year thing that it's happening right now and that drilling is happening on indigenous land it's ha- you know we have lead pipes still in the infrastructure of black communities their housing is still next to the same fucking pollutant factories that that uh, release toxic gas or uh, you know like all, you name it into the water supply into the air like destroy green spaces all that kind of thing uh, to help people understand that this isn't like, you know, a 2050 thing. This is an existential thing now or never. That's where I would, that's where I would spend my time. Um, And when I say not profit motivated, like I think film has a, in nowadays, sometimes it has an aspect of it that can feel a, a bit like colonialism. Like you'll have, I don't know, some white filmmaker come into a community that's ravaged by a problem, extract their stories, and then tell and sell those stories off for profit to streaming network to something, you know, to make money for themselves. And that person, that entity, that community will never see a share of what that, you know, of of that return for what they, for, for what that story provided. For me, I'd love to figure out a way to have stories like this become a a pot of recurring revenue for communities so that they independently can decide what to spend that money on, whether it's direct payments for the people involved, 
uh, whether it's, you know, sort of given to a trust for a community for them to be like, okay, we're going to build new infrastructure, we're going to build new housing, we're going to just pay people. That's sort of where I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And if I didn't have these stupid payments every month, uh, I think that, that would be, I would have to live on far less. Like right now I have to live, I have to, I have to work at an expensive job because that's how I, that's how I'm able to afford my bills and like continue growing out of this debt. But uh, until then, this is the, this is the hustle, you know? And uh, how much do you pay each month right now? I'm pro. I'm paying more than I should, but I think all in all, I'm paying about twelve hundred dollars a month. You're required to pay twelve hundred, or you do pay twelve? I do pay twelve hundred. I think I'm probably okay. required to pay like nine seventy or one thousand, maybe. But I, I'm okay. paying more. Okay. Uh, so it's not that I I would say that you don't want. It's not that you want to do nonprofit. It's that you want different people to profit and not just profit in mm-hmm. financial ways, but profit in not having poison water and, uh, you know, real, real profit. Right. You know? Right. Um, yeah. Okay. That was great. So, uh, it, it, before we end, is there anything else that you feel needs to be said? Oh, I feel like I've rambled a lot on this. Um, I did too. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I really feel like there's good information in here. I, I don't really know if I can, if there's anything else I have to share other than, like, I think this is an issue that requires solidarity for for all of us. And like, like I said at the at the top of this and before, I I am not the prof. I'm not the poster child for this issue, and I I should never be. Um, I think think I have a unique story, and it's just part of the wider network of people. But I also think it's important not to like make individuals out of this, right? Because that's how they get away with it. They get away with oh the the individual you know, it's, this is the individual that's suffering. No, there's 43 million, 44 million people who have this issue. Uh, so, you know, I, I think understanding and recognizing that, Hey, this isn't something we should be ashamed of talking about because a lot of us are struggling with it, but also like we, uh, we need, we need solidarity with each other. That's how we're going to force those, those in power to, uh, do what they're democratically elected uh, to do for us. Okay. Um, Sean, thank you so much for talking. Uh, this was, this was great. Uh, yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed talking with you and, you know, I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. 
Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn, and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today's the second half of Student Debt Horror Story number two with Sean McCoy. In part one, Sean described his background, his journey to decide on a university, the basics of his loans, and his experience and difficulties paying them off. Sean left school with nearly $150,000 in student debt. Now it's five years later and he's paid more than required each month, which has reduced it to around $120,000. At this rate, he will have fully paid off his loans around the year 2042. That's not a joke. Today, we continue that discussion and especially focus on Sean's responses to some of the terrible arguments against canceling student debt. These arguments are largely based on the false notion that our individual tax dollars are required to pay for the education and debt of others. To learn more about Sean and his work, you can visit his website at seancmccoy.com. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, let's get right back to my conversation with Sean McCoy. Enjoy. Enjoy. 